Welcome to the Magic in the Attic podcast. My name is Piano Man, and today I am joined by Midnight Mark and Juicebox Magoo, aka JBM. Are you missing March Madness? We hope so, because on this episode, we're going to talk about our top five favorite March Madness games. We're also going to talk about Christianity in relation to the hedonic treadmill, whether churches misunderstand the role of pastor, and a whole lot more. Don't forget that you can submit your questions to magicintheatticpodcast at gmail.com. We appreciate your support, and thanks for listening to The Magic in the Attic. The Magic in the Attic is back at it again. You're just chilling to the rhythm, and then the comes in. Dude, I like Illinois. My, my thing hates Illinois. Yeah, Bro. dude. Or maybe it just loves Loyola Chicago. Illinois, <laughs> Illinois might have the Jean. best... They might have the best center, and they might have the best guard. Like, Io is so good. He's the first player since, like, 2006 to average, like, over 20 and uh, and 5-5 five and five rebounds and assists. They're going like, out. They're going out in, like, the really second good. round. They're going to get beat. No, no, you're thinking of Gonzaga. Nah. Who, who's going to beat him? I don't remember. It's whoever they're playing in the second round. Nah. It's Oklahoma, bro. Oklahoma's legit. They just they're no, roller coaster. I, I don't think they're playing Oklahoma. I don't think they're yeah. playing Oklahoma. I mean, all right. This is the Magic in the Attic podcast. <laughs> we do not have our host with us tonight, but we do have. I am Piano Man. With me is Juice Boss Magoo, JBM, and Midnight Mark. We're gonna get fired up and just go diving straight into some questions. Our top five today is top five March Madness games. And I think we all picked games that were that we all watched. So I'll let uh, JBM get right into his list. All right. So I was a little late to the party preparing for this. Uh, I originally said I was just going to do games I watched. It quickly became a list of games that like happened in the last decade, more or less. Um, I guess with, yeah. No, more, completely, entirely in the last decade. So, number five, uh, I have Butler versus Duke in the 2010 championship, uh, just because it was such a crazy, true Cinderella, just wild run that Butler went on. Um, and uh, and they almost won. And there, it, it would have probably been the greatest buzzer beater of all time <laughs> had it gone in. Um, but it was just, it was a great game the whole time. Uh, Butler never backed down, truly David versus Goliath, but at the end of the day, Goliath did come out on top. Number four, I said Wichita State versus Kentucky in 2014. It was the second round, and it was like the it was total Final Four energy. Uh, it was the year that Kentucky ultimately, well, one of the years Kentucky went to the championship um, and, and, and uh, didn't quite get it done, but it was the tweak year, and it was crazy. Wichita State was undefeated. Um, it was it was really really crazy. It was a uh, who was on that team? Um, the Wiggins Randall. kid. The well, I'm in on the, twins? the Wichita State team. The, and oh, the white dude Van Fleet. with the bowl cut. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What had to do with and, the bowl cut and uh, Andrew Wiggins' brother, right? Um, but yeah, that was what? a fun one. Yeah, I his brother. Yeah, I don't think because he, he almost went there. He was like the sixth man. Oh well. We'll have to look it up. We'll have to look it yeah. up later. Um, Number three, I had Kentucky again versus Wisconsin in 2015. Um, this time, Kentucky was undefeated and was probably the best team I've ever seen. Um, and just it just didn't happen. And Wisconsin, with two white dudes, just took over. Um, and it was a pretty wild game in the Final Four. Um, no, you're crazy because the Kentucky team with Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis is so much better than any player ever. <laughs> that he Anthony, made the team the best team ever that you've seen. Anthony Davis was ridiculous. Um, number two was the Michigan versus Kansas game in the Sweet 16. Uh, just, I mean, I've mentioned this before. It was probably my personal most excited moment for one of my teams. Um, Michigan was down by like 10 with like a minute left. Trey Burke just took over. Just cold-blooded hammers a three from probably 10 or 12 feet from behind the line with like three seconds left, force overtime. Michigan ultimately wins and ends up uh, going on to the championship game where they never lost. Um, and then 
Um, number one was IU. Oh, this actually this is from the prior decade. IU versus Duke because for a good IU game we have to go back twenty years. Uh, I, I can't remember if it was 01 or 02, but Duke and IU played in the Sweet 16, and IU was down like 20 at halftime. And IU came storming back in the second half, took the lead. They were up by four with like six seconds left. And uh, who was it? Was it Chris Duhon, I think? Somebody shot a three, and Dane Fife fouls him. Literally the only thing you can't do. The game is over. You just don't foul. There's like five seconds left. He fouls him. Dude makes the three. He missed the free throw. And Jared Jeffries forgot to box out. Carlos Boozer jumps up, has the ball right here, a foot from the rim. He's a giant human. And he forgot like what he's supposed to do. He didn't dunk do. it. And he just he didn't missed dunk it. an IU one. And it was so crazy. I remember everybody in Indiana, because there was fireworks going off all over the place. It was, it was pretty wild. Yeah. So that is my list. Those are all good games. I, I I remember I didn't I didn't watch it. Um, I actually got to school and all the IU like all my IU friends had their IU stuff on, and I was like, "Oh, did they win?" And they're like, "Yeah, they um, went all the way to the championship." Yeah, yeah, but like um, that, I just assumed they weren't winning, so I didn't watch that game. Um, mm-hmm. And they did, and yeah, the hot dude. Carlos Boozer, just dunk it, dude. You're the best center in dude, college basketball. What was so crazy, it has to be the biggest comeback anybody ever had versus Duke at that point in time. Like, it was like a 20-point game in the second down half. Like, they were down like 24. Yeah, it was like wild. Yeah. And obviously, I know there's a massive exclusion from my list, but that's because I literally only watched the very end of the game. Which one? Oh, I mean, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got you. I, I got you on that one. Okay. <laughs> Well, with that, uh, since since Piano Man introduced us in, I'll go here and then you go last, all right? Um, Sounds good. Sound good? All right, cool. So my number five, um, number 11, George Mason against top-seeded UConn in 2006 in the Elite Eight was the first John like, Lewis. true amazing Cinderella run that I remember, okay? Like – they had had this improbable win the game before. I think it was against Washington. And then they be and not only, not only did like it wasn't like um UMBC taking out Virginia and they ended up winning by 20. It wasn't this like improbable thing. George Mason was clawing all game. In regulation, the final score was 86 to 84. All right, and their tallest player was six foot six. I mean, it was Wait, just. A, is huh? that not the? I thought the game went to like three overtimes. What was it in overtime? Or maybe it was. I don't know. It was eighty six to eighty four. It was awesome. Like, and the whole thing where the guy like dove out of dove to get it and it went out of bounds and George Mason got the ball again and scored and went up for good. Like, it was just awesome. It, yeah, I uh, remember. Like, it just kept it kept feeling like, okay. UConn finally took over. Mm-hmm. Like, they, oh, they fi- this is finally, it's over now. They took the lead, and then George Mason just never quit. Yeah, it was. I, I remember, you know how you go outside and you play basketball and you act like you're like, you know, oh, Michael Jordan or Kobe or whatever? We'd be like, Jai Lewis. He was a guy on George Mason. We'd be like, I'm Jai Lewis. It, <laughs> it, was, it was one overtime. You were right. Uh, yes, it uh, was one over. So it was a regulation. But still, 86-84, I mean, that's a high-scoring game for a mid-major like that, an 11 seed. When, what, was that an Elite Eight game? Uh, Elite Eight, first 11 okay. seed to make the Final Four. So, yeah, it was really dope. Um, I have two in 2008 back-to-back. So number four is Western Kentucky, 12 seed versus Drake. Um, in the first round, uh, this actually like in the ESPYs won like the best game of the tournament. Um, that game was like, you know, the top dog mid-major that had like two losses all year. And then, you know, the other mid-major that was really good, that was completely disrespected, who ended up giving UCLA a game in the Sweet 16, um, just throwing haymakers the whole game. And in the final second, when you think, oh, a team with Courtney Lee and Danny Rump and some of these other guys, they're going to win this game. Nah. It was like the random, 
white dude who all he does is shoot threes, knocking down like a 30-footer to win. Um, and I just remember I watched that with my cousins, and it was just it was just an awesome, awesome game, one of the best buzzer beaters, mostly because it came from kind of, kind of an improbable guy, you know? Like he was the last person I wanted to touch the ball and made the shot. Um, also in 2008, so we go from round one to the end, is Kansas versus Memphis. Derrick Rose misses the free throw. Mario Chalmers goes up the court, drills a three to send it into overtime for Kansas to win their first championship since 88. That game was just like, that was um, all four one seeds made the final four. And as much as we love upsets, that final four was awesome. It was the four best teams and the two best teams in the championship giving us a great game. Um, uh, so that's number three. And my number two, JBM stole it from me, Kentucky versus Wichita State. Um, that game was just one of the most exciting games. I mean, it was back and forth and back and forth. And it was a Kentucky team that, had they not gone on a little run, wouldn't have even made the tournament against undefeated Wichita State. Um, and Kentucky just clicked. And one of the forgotten things about that game is James Young hit essentially the game winner. He, he made a three with four seconds to go, in which started off James Young hits a three with four seconds to go. Aaron Harrison hits a three with 30 seconds to go. Then he does it again with five and again with, with three. So like four games in a row with a buzzer beater and the greatest run of a team that I like Ever. Even though they didn't win the championship that year, they were an eight seed and had four wins against four teams that they should not have won against. And that started it, and that was the best of the games. And then number one, it's the best basketball game I've watched, maybe ever, is Villanova versus UNC in 2017. I mean, it was just... Uh, yeah. I, I, I only mean, saw the last like three minutes of that I, game. I watched the whole game. I mean, it was... It was two masterful teams playing at the highest level. And then, uh, who was the guy from North Carolina? Page, Marcus Page, does a windmill three with, what was it, four seconds to go? Drills it. And that's the end. Like, it's still probably in my list of top five games if that's the buzzer beezer. But it's not. (laughs) It's... And Villanova makes a 35-foot shot to win. Like, and not even again, similar to Western. Wasn't it like their power forward that does shoot threes, but isn't like it, it you know, not necessarily like the guy, guy you want shooting from 35 feet, right? He's like a big guy. Like yeah. he's not he wasn't like some like point guard. Yeah, he was their power forward. And I, I mean he shot threes. Like it wasn't like it was like, oh, this is his first three ever. But I think if right. you're Villanova you know, you might want a different dude shooting that shot, but it was still awesome. So that's my list. Very cool. Well, I got, I got, I think three of the same that we've already said across the two of you. So my number, my number five was Kansas versus Memphis. And the reason that's on my top five was not only because of the buzzer beater to send it to overtime, but I was with a friend, the buzzer beater went in, so it was kind of late, but we had to go back to his house. So we're like, all right, if this ends up tied going to overtime, we got to go back to your house and watch the end of the game. So we were driving like 100 trying to get back to his house to watch, <laughs> watch overtime. So, so it's a good game for me, but it has a little more exper- like an experience for me as well. Uh, from the same year was Drake versus WKU. That's before I, I was went to WKU or knew I was going to go to WKU. And I just remember that as being the most epic, like, NCAA game. Not only because it went to overtime, but, like, t- so so it had a buzzer beater in overtime to win the game. But also to get to overtime, both teams hit, like, back-to-back crazy shots to get into overtime. So it was just a great game. Like, awesome game. Uh, my number three was Duke versus Butler. Um I still wish Gordon Hayward hit that shot because it'd be my number one if he Dude, did. It'd be everybody's number yeah. one if it went in. I mean, it was it, so it, close though. It, it just like it lipped yeah. out. 
if crazy. he would have made that shot, it would have been bigger than the Leitner shot. Like oh, it was, yeah. it would yeah. have been so crazy. Easy. Oh yeah, easy. Yeah, my number two, one I've mentioned before on the podcast, Stephen F. Austin versus VCU. Four point play. Four point play with three seconds left. They're down by four, and they hit a four-point play. What are you doing, VCU? But, hey, it makes for great basketball, you know? Yeah. Uh, my number one has got a little tied to me. I was in Kansas City when this game happened. It was Oklahoma State versus Georgia Tech Final Four. The buzzer Ooh, beater. It's, it's, probably, it's probably the last time Georgia Tech made it to the NCAA tournament. I have no idea. The Jer- um, Jared Jack, right? Jared Jack was on that team, yeah. Will Bynum cool. made the last second yeah. reverse layup to to tie or I think to win the game actually. Uh so Chris they advanced to the team? finals to get smashed. No, that was the Chris Bosch was on the team before that, mm. the year before that. Okay. Before he went to become an all star or a, a Hall of Famer. Right. <laughs> I I don't know how Chris Bosch made the NBA Hall of Fame, but hey, whatever. <laughs> Dude, your boy Josh Passner. The right people. Um, one one honorable mention is I couldn't even pick one, but Florida Gulf Coast. That whole run where they were just dunking on people Dun- and everyone what was, was like, it, Dunk City? Heck? Yeah, yeah they're Dunk like, City. who is this lo- team? Yeah, yeah. Lo- yeah, it was Dunk City. Yeah, yeah, because oh, uh, the Clippers were Lob City, so they were yeah. like, yeah. That was that was a good. Th- there's been a lot of like fun Cinderella-ish things, mm-hmm. but sometimes. You know, remember the run necessarily the game. That's why the George Mason game for me stood out because not yeah, only was I forgot it, about that game. Yeah, that was a great. I game. mean, it was just awesome. Um, all right, well, we're uh, we're actually making good on time there, like we talked about piano man. So, kind of, yeah, we are because my timer is doing well. Um, okay. So, piano man, That's I know you, you just were, you wait, were, wait, wait. You just showed it, and we were twenty minutes in. Huh? Well, Did I it started at forty-one. I started it earlier than I wanted to, but I'm keeping I'm keeping good time. Okay. So okay. whatever you say, whatever you say. Yeah. So just just add five minutes to that clock. That's what I'm doing. Um, all right. Cool. Okay. All right. So you've been wanting to ask a question for what three weeks now, and we just yeah. I feel like I've been mentioning it. Yeah. So it's been cooking, right? It's like a slow cook. So I know you said you had a little bit of a long explanation. So go ahead and give it to us, and then we will uh, drop our takes. Yeah, sure. So my question, I want to do a little background here, but it's about the hedonic treadmill, and I want to go into some background as to what that is. It's kind of about adaptation to your the like circumstances you're in now. And so as people, we have this like tension between our un, unfilled needs and wants and, and the top of that Maslow's hierarchy where we like want that self actualization like this this fulfillment in what we do and and it's kind of weird because they did a study with i think it was 22 lottery winners and 29 paraplegics and then they took like 25 uh people who (laughs) neither of those things applied to and and they asked them after amount of time like how happy they are on a scale of one to five or one to ten and so as you would imagine the Lottery winners were happier than the paraplegics. But what might surprise you is that the lottery winners are actually just as happy as normal people. And the paraplegics were still like happy. Like it's not like they were unhappy. But if you had asked them this question right after, say they got in an accident and were paraplegic, they would have rated themselves as super unhappy. Or if you just won the lottery, you would rate yourself as extremely ecstatic. But eventually you come back to about this mean, like this normal level. And so um, we just over time adapt to our circumstances, our experiences. So, um, I mean, another little bit about that is that, so people in like a Midwestern college were asked, you know, how happy are people in a California college with this great weather? And you would expect them to be super happy but actually, they're just as happy as you are. Like, it, those circumstances like don't actually matter that much to your happiness. So, as a Christian, though, there's or let let me back up one one step further. We're so to be on this hedonic treadmill, right? Always seeking pleasure. We have to keep chasing experiences to get this satisfaction level. 
Like if if we want to be at a plus 20 satisfaction level, we can do things that get us there. But if we keep doing the same things, we're going to keep on, it's going to diminish. Like we're going to go from a plus 20 to a plus 10, right? But as a, does Christianity help us to get off of this hedonic treadmill? Like, does it, does it give us a sense of hope and purpose that actually makes us realize that we don't need to chase like things or experiences that, um, you know, give us this certain expectation of pleasure or happiness. Um, is that really what kind of Christianity is all about is giving you this mindset where you don't have to chase things to have, to be on this hedonic treadmill and get off the rat race. So I'm sorry that was a long winded explanation, but hopefully that was interesting. No, I, yeah, that was good. I don't know if you meant to mute yourself or not, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, uh, I think how it's long good. ago JPM, did I mute myself? Like, like, like the halfway through the last word. Okay. Yeah. You ended your statement. I, I don't think I did that. Purpose. No, I don't think so. Yeah. But all right. that was weird. And anyways, um, JBM, what, what do you think about this? I'd like to hear what you say before I say, uh, so I mean, on one hand it's like, okay, yes. Like, of course, like Christ came to say the lost and we're lost because we're caught up on this hedonic treadmill. Right. But I guess on the other hand, it kind of, I feel like it almost depends how you grew up because like, I feel like if you grew up in a church environment for some people, if you grew up in a religious household, depending on strictness level and openness level and things like that, it would almost, uh, kind of like how they do with the, the Amish, right? The breaking Amish where they go away for two years to experience the hedonic treadmill, I guess you might say, but to go experience the world to see if that's what they're about or not. Um, so I don't know, I guess it, it, the door almost could swing both ways because I feel like some people, you know, kind of come into it and they're like, Hey, I'm sick of doing the same thing as a Christian. If they are doing that, right. If they're in a very, uh, cyclical, uh, environment, which probably means they're, you know, probably not doing the things they should be as a Christian. Cause it should be more involved in that. But I feel like in that case, people are like, well, I'm done with this. I want to do something new. And then they go that way. But I feel like in a general sense, yeah. I mean, when you're talking about seeking and saving the lost, like if you are, you know, out and you've been doing this for years and years and decades and decades for some people of the rat race and trying to keep up with your neighbors and, you know, and, and not only that, but also keeping up, as you said, with yourself and chasing that next high of whatever it is of, um, you know, for some people, literally, I guess they're chasing a high from drugs or whatever, but like not the average person they're chasing like, Hey man, I went to this cool event and I want to go to one that's even cooler because it's not the same when you go back to one that's on the same level. Like it just isn't like going like the first college football game you go to is so exciting. But then when you've gone to like six or seven of them, now it's like, oh, the bowl game is exciting, or the conference championship, like something that's like another level where you're like, oh, I'm doing like a special trip to go to this game. Um, you know, this meant my team was XYZ good, that kind of thing. You know, the uh, the TV experience versus the in-person experience, It you know, you're just always looking for that next thing to push you. So. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's kind of it's like the, um, but specifically through, rich people and celebrities, right? I mean, you have people, but there's a reason why there's all this buzz about certain, you know, people's sexual nature when you get to like, when you're really rich, right? Because for us, it might be really cool that we, you know, we get a lot of money and then we can buy something cool, right? <laughs> oh, I but thought you were going to say somebody... something sexual, but I did too. No, no, it's no, really no, cool no, that we like... can like get with, you know, our neighbor, <laughs> get them, get them involved. <laughs> Yeah. Get on the treadmill <laughs> together. Whoa. Um, but, you know, they have all this money, so money is nothing to them. So then they go and they try to fulfill that with sexual desires. And, you know, like you said, being with one woman or 10 or this one or this celebrity or whatever is not enough. Or taking this drug, like you said, it's not enough. But I think that's how people perceive what you're asking, piano man. People are like, yeah, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you you aren't like that. To me, I look at it as there the 
there isn't really a treadmill. It's like what JBM said. You go to a college football game, that's really fun. But if you go a lot, or even like even if you don't go a lot, the next time you go, there just isn't that same feeling. So it's not like you start at one point and you go back. You're always trying to move forward. To, so to, to his point, I think I think it's called a treadmill because like the first time you get on it, you're going a certain speed, and then if you do that long enough, and then you have to speed up oh, in order okay. to get the same I, I thought, feeling in I your thought body. Of, yeah, I got what you're saying. So it's like track, but. What I'm saying, what I guess what I mean to is, and I did like the explanation, so I didn't think it went too long. I thought it was fine. Helped me understand it a little bit better. I think it helps everybody else. Um, is less to do about, oh, people, people do that, and more of this is what the world wants, right? So the world tells people these days, don't get married until you're 30 because you won't get to travel. Or they'll say, don't have kids, or certain people will say, don't have kids because then you won't be able to save your money or you won't be able to spend your money. Or people will, you know, it, there, there's these, these goals that the world thinks that certain people should have to earn, right? And that's kind of the treadmill for them. Um, whereas as a Christian, I think it is, is supposed, is, sort of built for you to be able to find happiness with whatever you choose in life and long as it centers around God, right? And you can find that. It's um and I know we're gonna talk about this a little bit later, I think. Um is JBM recommended a um a book called Something Has to Change. And there are things in that book that aren't really any different than you hear when somebody from another country comes and does their, you know, hey, you support me and this is what happens. But, and I want to talk about it in a longer format later, but there's stuff in it about like heaven and hell that has really got me thinking a lot. And on this particular subject, I think as Christians, it's okay if we don't really satisfy that hunger as long as that hunger is with God, right? It's fine for us to feel at peace with ourselves and our Christianity, but we should always be striving to do more. Like the first time you read, it's, it's why you should continue to read your Bible, right? You read a verse and you might be like, wow, that, that was crazy. I didn't think about that. And if you don't read it again, you'll probably forget, you know, but then when you read it a second time, it won't hit you as hard. Like, oh yeah, I remember that, but that is weird, you know? So you do kind of have to keep that constant study. But so it's interesting. You can find different things in your life. It's funny because what you're saying almost sounds like okay. So it's not the hedonic treadmill, right? But now you're on the spiritual treadmill where I like have to get something new to like. So so novelty is a big part of the hedonic treadmill, and it sounds like you're saying novelty is a big part of like this spiritual cycle that you're on as well. And I think it did point to something that JBM said, where like you know the the Amish have this rum springa where they go try like novel things to see like if it entices them like is this what i am i really is it worth giving all this up for my spiritual journey um but you know it, it's I, I guess back to the to the question again is like is christianity trying to get you away from that from that you know hedonic type of lifestyle that you would be on I feel like that's the flesh, you know, your flesh wants this hedonic lifestyle, but the spirit wants this, this like religious in the spiritual cycle. So, I mean, <clears throat> I think yes, but I don't think that means you're, you're getting away from the, the treadmill concept altogether because no matter what you're doing, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, like even just let's, let's take like religion out of it for a second. If you're doing something good or bad, you're always going to have this same feeling. Like, if I do the same thing, exact thing that I've done before, I'm not going to get that. After a while, I'm not going to get that same high. Or I'm not going to get that same, uh, you know, jubilation uh, from it. Um, but, yes, I mean, I do think Christianity is supposed to supposed to be breaking you away from the fleshly desires, certainly. Yeah, so Christianity doesn't allow you to really escape that like inherent need for like need for something new to get you like farther or for that more self fulfillment. 
Well, I think I think it puts you in a, in like a different box almost. Like you, it it's a uh, I don't know. Like I feel like if you are helping people, right? Over time, as you help people, I mean, think about the movie Schindler's List, right? He starts out and he like helps a few people. And then he realizes he wants to help as many people as he possibly can. Like, it's not like he's addicted to the feeling of it. He's just realizing, like, I need to do this more. Like, and so then by the end, he's literally giving away every single thing he has to help more and more and more people. Because, like, it gets to a point with him that he's like, I, I just want to help more people. And I think that's I like kind of the even, idea. And, and Jesus even talks about, you know, be happy with what God has blessed with you, blessed you but be willing to give it all away or be willing to walk away from that or use that for the betterment of others. So I, I almost think in terms of what you were talking about being happy, like your levels of happy, it, it almost directs you toward you should just be happy in servitude. Like that should that if you're if you're doing that, because going back to the Amish thing, a lot of people choose to go back to that life because they go into the world and they're like, this doesn't. Yeah, this doesn't give me any fulfillment. I love that I have family. I love that I have my religion that that I that cares about me. I think too many times on this treadmill, as you're talking about what makes people happy is completely manufactured. Um, and what God wants us to do is to not have manufactured happiness, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And with that, did we answer your question? Yeah. More? I enjoyed it. Cool. Awesome. So, uh, JBM, I know you had some musings, uh, a little bit that actually turned into a question that I think we all want to talk. So go ahead and, uh, tell everybody what that is. Okay. So, uh, I'm reading a book right now called Operation Paperclip which go figure is about operation paperclip um during the during the you know aftermath of world war ii when is this the one you're you're doing on audiobook because it's taking you longer to read this one than it is the worst it is the worst voice i've ever heard for an audiobook i literally feel like siri is reading me the book it's so it's painful sometimes like the information is so interesting but it is so get the paper yes actually read it like yes do a a quick thing on on paperclip do a quick uh, summary okay. on Operation yeah. Paperclip. So, okay, that? quick summation of Operation Paperclip. In the aftermath of World War II, um, basically, after the, like, when the war was over and, like, we all knew, all the Allies knew, like, all right, Germany's done. So, I guess the war is not even technically over yet because we still got to deal with the, the Japanese. But um, things are wrapping up. And there was, like, this specific bridge that they said, like, when they crossed it, it was, like, a free-for-all the the british but mostly it was the americans and the russians but the british and then eventually the french even were just like dude we got to get these scientists as fast as possible so we can take all of the german technology so that we can advance ourselves um and it's super shady because ultimately we brought over like 1800 nazi scientists some of which were directly responsible for some of the worst things that happened uh in the concentration camps um, but during this book, as they're talking about that and how they got around some of that and, you know, some of these guys ultimately did end up, you know, being hung in Nuremberg and stuff. But as they're talking about some of the things these guys did, a lot of what they did, the Joseph Mengele's of the world who we didn't, at least we didn't bring that guy over. We never could find him. He died in Argentina at an old age from an aneurysm, but With Hitler. Huh? No, I'm just I said with Hitler. With Hitler. <laughs> yeah, with uh, Hitler's still alive. <laughs> this is euchre, buddy. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, but but a lot of what these guys did is they they did all these human trials for all kinds of stuff, and they did it for like if if you could freeze someone and bring them back, uh, they did. I mean, like horrible, horrific things. But they also did some stuff with, with in terms of like using vaccines. Because they were like testing, their purpose was, we're going to test to see if we can affect an entire population with this deadly disease so that they'll all die. Uh, but then they were like, okay, how, what if we get it? Like, can this make us, you know, um, you know, better as far as antidotes or treatments go? Can we get this vaccine to make us better? And it made me think about like, you know, now it kind of started as a joke when I originally said this, but like a while back we talked about the death penalty. 
So we're not going to get into that debate again. But if you're going to have a death penalty, and we're going to have these people that we just stick on death row or whatever, would it would it be a, a good use or would it, I mean could we just like say I'm not saying hey freeze them to death and see if we can bring them back, but like COVID's going on. No one wants to volunteer for the COVID trial because we didn't know anything. We don't know a whole lot more now, for that matter. But, um, but like, should we just use these people and give them this vaccine to see what the side effects are and be like, hey, here's your contract. You don't have you're you're still getting life. You don't have to die, but you're gonna like do these tests for us. You might. <laughs> you might. That's true. That's also true. But I don't know. Like, basically, long story short. Um, should we be able to use prisoners who are on death row or for that matter, maybe they even have life in prison. I don't know, but should we be able to use these people as essentially human guinea pigs? Um, and I guess if you wanted to take it a step further, you could even make it a, Hey, this means you don't get the death penalty. Or if you have life, Hey, this means you're only going to get 25 years. I, I don't know, but that's a little deeper into the question, but you know, should we use these prisoners to test things for the healthy law-abiding citizens, so to speak. Yeah, I can start. Um, first of all, what makes it so like egregious for what happened during World War II is that those people did nothing wrong. Yeah, they weren't. And, and yeah. They, let me let me roll that back so no one misunderstands. No, I don't think anyone misunderstands. That the I Jews just were criminals. Yeah, yeah no, I, you didn't say that. I just wanted to point out like what makes that so terrible. Like those people did absolutely nothing wrong, and then they were having these experiments done to them. That being said, um, I do not think that these people who have done something wrong should also have experiments done to them. Um, and and the reason I say I that is will. okay. So that is a big point of it. Um, I do believe that experiments should be done and will be done, but you should ask. I think the first population that should be asked if they would like to participate some sort of trial is prisoners, especially prisoners on death row. Um, I think that's a great opportunity, whether they get, cause I'm pretty sure they still get paid like for doing little tasks and stuff. So it's an opportunity to be paid maybe um, less than, their sentence as you already described before, but some kind of like incentive to allow them to participate. Of course, there's a, I think there should be an option for them not to, unlike the Jews and others in concentration camps that had no option. <laughs> um, but I think it is a great population to test things on. I mean, if they're willing to do it, why, why not ask them if they'd like to? Yeah, I agree. That was actually basically exactly what I was going to say. Um, I think you could have an opt-in form because we talked about a little bit about how people who are on death row, um, there's a lot of them who admit it. They want the death penalty. So they know they're going to die anyway. Um, and so these are people that we know are guilty. Um, and then there are other people who are not guilty and probably shouldn't or definitely shouldn't be on death row um, or people who may be going through appeals process and maybe you say that, you know, if you're going through a, an appeal process or if you don't if you don't want to participate, but you can kind of present it to some of these people as, hey, you know, your your life is going to mean something because some of these mostly men, probably maybe all men, um, they still kind of have that pride to them. You know, if you say, hey, we're creating- no, we just executed some lady here in Indiana. Well, months ago. okay. Well then, yeah, but still mostly men. Um, <laughs> we still have like a, a pride, uh, where you say, Hey, we're, we're trying this experiment out. And if you're the one this works on, then, you know, you'll, you'll be known as that people will know you as that. Um, and that might incentivize some of these people to say, yeah, we want to do that. The real question is, is that inhumane anyway, right? To just say, we're gonna try this on humans. I personally agree with everything Piano Man said. I think if people want to try and be a part of an experiment, there's, I mean, there has to be some credibility to doing some human trials early to be able to make sure these things work. Because how, how many times, I and mean, we're talking right now about the COVID vaccine, of whether or not it actually works or actually does what it says it's going to do, because we didn't really have a whole lot of time to test it. There's people who don't want 
us to test things on animals. So I'm I'm thinking like it's probably a good thing to be like, hey, does this work? You know, but probably you, you don't. <laughs> well, right, because there's so much out there. That I think people make that they test them uh, in labs instead. Like, oh, we we put this up against some chemical and it worked, so now you can take it, right? Like, it doesn't go to try like human trials till way after they think it's okay. So, I do think we have to look at it from a somewhat of a humanitarian standpoint where we don't just have people raising their hand because um, I think there was, wasn't there also something where um, somebody was uh, like here recently, they were injecting people with something that gave them the polio vaccine and it was just some sort of uh, like I think tribe. It was, it was the, have you ever heard of this guy named Bill Gates? Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure was it, it was Bill Gates' company. It was like company. a Clinton and, thing. It was like a was Clinton in, thing. I don't think it was the Clintons. I think it was Bill Gates' company. It was in like India, right? Yeah, it would, and they gave them all like smallpox or something. I don't know yeah. exactly, but yeah, it was something really, really deadly. And it was just, oh well, I guess these people—they're just in a tribe. We're gonna make them feel like they're a part of something good. They're one of those poop hole yeah. countries. You, you can't just do that. You can't say, hey, raise your hand. Because then what will happen is is people who don't really want to, they don't know what they're signing up for, will end up with something really bad. You know? Mm-hmm. So I think what Piano Man said, starting out on a kind of people who don't really have rights, give them the option. And then maybe you can move, I don't know, people who are a terminal. People who are going to die anyway. Maybe you look at them and say, hey, you know... Do you want to be euthanized? Um, I mean, that's another debate. But there, there are people who, who say when they die, they want to give their their body to science, mm-hmm. right? Well, what about people who are alive that might say, hey, I want to test my myself body. towards science? Yeah. I don't know. It, it could go – I don't know if you could actually do it in a way that would be – legal or wouldn't cause issues but bro can you imagine this for a second like all right so like during the space race like everyone freaked out because they were so excited that russia sent this chimp into space and then they were super mad a couple days later when they realized they had no intention of this monkey ever coming back but can you imagine if like a couple weeks later we just like blasted charles manson into space (laughs) like just to see hey you know what's funny is (laughs) Is like you know what our test population is for this COVID vaccine? It's all the doctors all and nur- all the doctors and nurses. Like, oh that's yeah, true. that's a really great test set for you know yeah. our new vaccine. Yeah, the people that we actually need. Yeah, the people that we need to take <laughs> like, care of it. Let's give them all hey. this this vaccine that we've tested for like a year, no less than a year. Well, and they, I mean, they had to halt whatever vaccine they had going around Europe. Because, like, there's a bunch of lawsuits. But, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I think that's the spirit of the spirit of the question. Um, what I, do I don't think? know. I, I, I mean, I think kind of along the same lines you guys do. I think it should be a voluntary situation. Um, and, the, and you have to, I mean, you can't just, pride is, is big in men, but I don't know that everyone's just going to be like, yeah, sign me up, if there's no incentive for them. And maybe all the incentive is, hey, you get an extra carton of cigarettes each month i don't know i don't even know that's still a thing i'm sure it's a thing in some capacity but you know we're going to give you an extra few prison bucks or maybe we are going to knock off you know some of your yeah, i'd do it for a carton but, of cigarettes <laughs> but uh, you're like shoot me up um but uh yeah i mean i think i don't know it just it does seem like a way to expedite um human testing which which if you think about it like we have plenty of uh of trials on stuff that like we think is all good. We've tested it on animals and lab rats and stuff for like 10 years. And then we start testing on humans and we realize it's not good. So what if we could find that out like five years earlier? Like that, hey, this is just a bad situation altogether. I don't know. It would, just, it would, it would allow people to have different jumping off points for stuff. And probably medicine would probably advance quicker. Well, and that's where what we can do is when... Um the United States introduces our social justice app. Whoever just has the lowest score, you're tested first. Eh. Right? 
No, <laughs> no opt-in. It's all based on yeah, your social. No, credit. you're just it's you're a one. On... Who you know? You're the. See ya. <laughs> so, sorry, Stephen Crowder. You're dead. Um, <laughs> uh, well, you, you know his his score would be pretty low. Um, all right, so we have a bunch of questions that was emailed in from uh, Midnight Mark Senior. We uh, did one last week, so we thought we'd ask another this week. Um, we should call so, him All Day Mark. All All Day Mark from Columbus, Indiana. Um, so he asks in another one of these questions. Um, which we are having a hard time picking because a lot of them are pretty good. Uh, how have so many people and churches misunderstood the role of a pastor? Uh, I think what he's talking about is, is in many denominations um, or many churches that are organized, they call their preacher pastor and they don't really call their elders that that's, that's, the name pastor is designated to the person who's up in the pulpit. Whereas a lot of non-denominational churches or specifically like one he attends, the Church of Christ, um, calls their their elders pastor. And they don't really refer to them as that at all. Um, and so I guess the spirit of that is, is are, are those churches just all wrong? Um, and they should, shouldn't call a preacher, a pastor based on what we have on the scriptures, or is it really not that big of a deal? And, uh, I'll let piano man go first. Cause, uh, I know he's thought about it a little bit more cause we talked about it, um, a little off air. I don't know if that actually means I've thought about it more, but I guess there's a, <laughs> yeah. a higher chance, maybe a higher probability. So first of all, in the Bible, it does refer to the pastor as a shepherd or an elder and it, and it gives like all these qualities that an elder has to be or a pastor has to be and then if you look at it from this uh, uh worldly perspective i don't know what the right word is but from this other perspective the pastor when it's related to a preacher the preachers don't have to like have a wife, they don't have to have all these qualities. Like no, none of those churches would say, oh, our pastor has to have these qualities that it says in the Bible. So obviously there's there's some like discrepancy between that. But at the same time, if, if the pastor just means shepherd and they're just saying, oh, he's a shepherd of our like flock of people, then obviously the preacher is the one who's speaking the most often. I, I could see how someone would say, you know, this is just our shepherd. Um, but just in a different way, you know, they're not saying like, this is our elder or our, you know, I, hopefully you understand what I'm trying to say here. Yes, I do. So I guess it's Save maybe you. just a, like a lexiconical thing. I don't know. So you really got to start with Paul. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I mean, I don't think it matters. I mean, ultimately, I just don't think this, I don't think it actually matters. Um, I mean, I, I think if you look, if, because as, as Piano Man just said, like, if you're looking at your preacher and you're calling him pastor, and then you're, you're like, yeah, so he meets all these requirements. Now, that could become a, certainly a confusing situation for someone, maybe. Um, but I don't think it, it really matters. Like, if you ever meet someone... And if you met so, if you met a total stranger and they told you they were a pastor, you would assume they were a preacher, right? Like first, you wouldn't be like, "Oh, you're an elder at your local congregation." You would be like, "Oh, you're a preacher." And then they might say, "Yeah, I go to this church of Christ," and you might you might kind of change your thought on that, right? Which is which is interesting. Um, but I, I don't think that at the end of the day it matters. It, it's a it's a term that for whatever reason along the way has been adopted for the person speaking. Um, and also to be fair, in some respects, you know, I, I think, uh, if that's the way you're going to use pastor and one, one would assume that if you are leading the church, you are also a capable speaker, uh, in some capacity, um, you know, to, to lead your, your congregation, um, or more so than your congregation, people outside of your congregation, uh, because that's kind of the, uh, the idea of a shepherd anyway, is that, uh, not only are you taking care of your flock, but um, 
you know, if, if another another sheep comes along, you're going to take care of it too. Uh, but I don't think it's something. I think it's probably one of those goofy things that you know. Uh, sometimes being being within the Church of Christ, we make larger deals about than we should, right? Like uh, you know, Jonah definitely did not get swallowed by a, a whale. It was a big fish. Um, you know, just one of those things that we make a, a huge deal about. How do you um, know that, it wasn't that, a whale? <laughs> that's his point. <laughs> that's all. That's his point. Yeah. Um, but like, I mean, I, I think it's one well, of those things that that. At the end of the day, doesn't matter, and I understand why the 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 uh, actual language for some people bothers them. But like, I I don't think anyone's sitting there going like, "Oh man, you said that the preacher is a pastor, your church is condemned to hell." Like, yeah, and you know. I do I agree with you. With Paul lays that out in Titus, right? But a lot of what we get in sort of the inference, as it were. Um, to that is actually from Peter. In 1 Peter 5, it says, So I exhort you, elders among, among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And then he goes goes into you know, more of what sort of, you know, you should do there and then talks about, and he's specifically talking about elders, like actual elders leading the church, because then later in verse five, he talks about younger people sub- subjecting to the, uh, the older members of the con of the congregation. And so I, I, I don't think it's a big deal that we, or some churches make a big deal about it because there is, there should be a distinction among what you do if you're shepherding a church. But I, I think where the confusion has come is so many people, and we do it. I mean, listen, we do it at our congregations as well. We put more emphasis on the preacher than we do the elders many times. Think about a preacher leaves a church, you know, they get a different job decides to not be a preacher anymore, or maybe he's not cutting it and they decide to move on from him. It could um, be many reasons they leave. Many, right. Those are just kind of the three big ones, right? <laughs> but, uh, what? Pedophilia. Uh, but the, you know, uh, mm. but people but people hold that in high regard, right? Like there are people who leave churches because they, the preacher that comes in isn't as good as the last one. Mm-hmm. Are there people that come to churches that because a good preacher comes in, that's way better than what they have or better than the last one? I hate to say it, but there's probably less people that actually decide. What, you know, when you go to a church, I feel like the thing you look for is, are there people here that I can relate to? And who's up there in the pulpit? Very rarely do people say, oh, how is this actually being run? You know, who are these men that run it? Um, I'm not saying everybody, but I do think that's sort of what gets in our mind. And I think about that a lot because I've changed churches a lot with my job since I've moved a lot. Um, So I kind of think it is important to make a distinction, actually. Um, I don't think think it's a big deal. Like, we shouldn't be like, oh, you're a Baptist pastor you're condemned to hell because you call yourself a pastor i agree with that but i i do think that if you're in a church who believes that you shouldn't call your preacher a pastor because they don't meet the requirements you should continue to do that because we should make these distinctions because peter made these distinctions and so did paul so that's i i do think there should be do you think well Maybe this is a discussion for another time, but like, maybe part of the confusion here is like, should we even have preachers, like local preachers that preach every single week? Should we even have that? <clears throat> well, I I don't think it's it's a bad thing, uh, but I'm not saying I will it's say, wrong. But I will say this that I think we need to be careful about because I've heard sermons, I've heard a sermon when I was in Bowling Green, Kentucky about how the word awesome is used in this one way in the Bible. And so therefore we should not use the word awesome in like any other context. And so I don't think that's a correct interpretation of how you should use the Bible. And so like if someone wants to just say, 
the word pastor to mean shepherd, but not in the sense of like elder that we would use it. That I don't think there's anything wrong with it. So we need to be careful. Like that context, even if it's been developed over time, there's nothing actually, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. If the context is changed over time. Yeah. I guess that's what I was saying. I was more or less saying if you're aware of it and you're within a congregation, it's probably good to make distinctions. If, does that yeah. make sense? No, I, I okay. do understand your point. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's. I don't think there's anything bad about making a distinction either. I right. Just, I don't know. I mean, right. I, I guess. Well, never mind. We'll come back to that another day. All right. I definitely want to get into that topic. All right. Well, we're making good time here, so we'll finish with our. Uh, well, we've been calling a rapid fire, but honestly, I kind of take it as here's some things that were coming off the top of my head, and I just want to know what you think about them because I'm mm. normally stupider than you two. So we'll just roll with that. Hmm. So topic number one, Michigan State is now sponsored by Rocket Mortgage. Are we buying or selling other schools will do the same and will it allow players to start getting some pay for Is it playing? on the jerseys? Buy or sell. Is it on the jerseys? It's yeah. Good, yeah. Michigan State Spartans sponsored by or like powered by Rocket Mortgage. That's what they're going to be called from now on. So again, Whoa. I'll repeat. <laughs> Buy or sell other schools doing the same, and will it allow for players to start getting some pay for play? JBM. Absolutely. I mean, Coca Cola sponsoring Georgia Tech. Like, I see the whole thing. Like, I mean, just all these different places. Uh, how about the University of Texas brought to you by Tesla? Uh, just different stuff like that, where there's going to be money coming to the school, which is obviously great for the school, right? But I think it also allows these schools to be like, hey, you're part of the school too. We're going to pay you for your portion of the likeness. Um, now, I don't know that they're going to be able to say, hey, you're our starting quarterback or you're our starting point guard. You get X amount. Meanwhile, this guy gets this much. I, that'll probably be hairy, but I think there will be like a blanket. Like everybody gets this much. Yeah, I tend to agree. If, is it going to make money for the school? If the answer is yes, they will do it. So they're going to be doing it. Uh, secondly, is that money going to go directly to the players? I actually think no. That's just going to be going to the school. And then if the players do advertisements for the company, which they're likely to do because they're sponsored by it, that's how the players will make money. So sorry if you're riding the bench. You will not be making money unless you make it into a video game and you might get half a penny. So there you go. Yeah. I I'm, I'm in buy on them doing it, but I lean more toward the piano man as well. But I mean, good answers. All right. Will we soon have a service that packages all our streaming channels together, essentially coming full circle on the cable TV we abandoned? Piano man. <laughs> this is hilarious because I've thought about this for forever. So, so we had this split where we had like obviously cable television. Then they said, oh, you can buy our app where you only get these five channels like and these movies off of this channel. And then what they're going to do is form a conglomerate where you're like, oh, you can buy these five different streaming services that have these 100 different movies all on our package. So you just created cable TV all over again. And I've thought that's exactly what's happening. And then it's going to do this cycle in rotation over and over again as long as you can make money. It's what's going to happen. Probably so. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's yeah, it's just it's digitalizing cable. But at the same time, I mean, so like, as first of all, I mean, probably most of us are already now paying as much as we were for cable. Um, not maybe not us on this podcast, but most people uh, are paying this much. Like you got four, you got three, four, five services you're streaming plus your internet. All of a sudden, you know, you're back over $100 again, which is what you were trying to avoid. Um, at the same time, I mean, I think it's almost already a thing, right? Because, like, so we recently got a new TV, like, in the last month, and I can hit a button on it and say, uh, uh, find me Harry Potter 6, and then it, like, pulls it up, whichever app it's on. So we're kind of already there. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, I mean, what you said kind of has happened, right? Disney Plus came out and they were like, hey, if you get Disney Plus, you get ESPN Plus, you get Hulu Plus, and there might have been something else. 
So they're kind of already doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but what, for what, the same price of standard Hulu. Well, right, yeah. but what Zach's saying, or what Midnight Mark's saying, is is that you're gonna be able to be like, oh, check this out. I got this bundle that you can pay instead of sixty dollars for three mm-hmm. services. You can do all three services for fifty bucks, and you get Disney Plus, Netflix, mm-hmm. and Hulu. And like, right. eventually, it's just all of the channels that you would get with cable TV, and you can get it for one low price of ninety dollars a month. Like. It's the yeah, exact yeah. same thing. And it might, and honestly, it might even be uh, like DirecTV, you know, even the cable, like DirecTV Spectrum, they, oh, DirecTV is uh, pairing with Hulu, Netflix, HBO Max, and you get, if you get DirecTV now, you get the three, three streaming services for only like $10 more yeah. or something. But what yeah. I do like about it is that from now on, I think you'll actually be able to buy exactly what you want, which is nice. Yeah. It's going to get super personalized. Like, bef- like right now, like you had. Oh, if you want like the golf channel, for example, you have to get like a weird package. But I think it's going to get to the point where you can, maybe not soon, but it's literally going to get to a point where you're like, I want. They're like, hey, pick twenty channels, like, and you just pick whatever you want. I think Sling tried that, but they Did didn't they? have a recorder. So, but anyways, we'll move on. I saw this movie today, so it kind of hit home. Actors really want. Raya, the princess from Raya and the uh, Last Dragon, to be the, the newest Disney princess to be a member of the LGBT community. I don't really know after seeing it if it really is that, but over under five years until Disney actually produces a gay prince or princess. Frozen 3. It was over under five years. Whenever that comes out. That'll be the first one. I th- they they hardcore... Sure? Yeah, I didn't think so on Raya at all. I never really got that vibe. But on Frozen 2, I got the vibe. I got a little vibe. Well, I guess, okay, the reason why I say Raya is because some of the the actors came out and was like, it would be cool if she was, right? Like, it wasn't really presented in the movie. Well, Kristen Bell but- said that about, uh, about Frozen 2. So that's right. what I'm saying. I, I don't know. I just feel like a, fro- a third Frozen is probably coming... Before a second Princess Raya? I don't even... Well, was there going to be do you, one? Do you think they'll just scrap that and introduce a new one and be like, you know what I'm saying? Man, that's a it tough could. question. Piano Man, go saying. ahead. I think it'll be... Over or under five years? Super hard question, actually. I think it'll be really close to five years. I think over, though. Barely. Okay. I'll say under. And I'll say under. You, and you... And you do you think that's because they won't do it? They won't actually do it with Frozen, but they'll. It'll be something different down the line. Oh, I don't. I have no idea when they'll do it. I just. Yeah. Enough social pressure and Disney will cave to them, but they're to not going to just does... cave directly. But it'll take them a little time, and then they will. Well, they've started sprinkling it in, right? Like ABC, which is Disney, has it in there on some of their shows now. Yeah. Um, one of the movies what was the movie with the rabbit. And the fox that was Jason Bateman. Was Zootopia. Yeah, Zootopia. There was a gay couple in that. Well, and um, then Onward. Like, they, they were like, oh, the cop and Onward is a lesbian. I just can't see a main character. But five years seems about right. Yeah. I mean, they're they're moving towards it for sure. It seems like um, the actors the actors are pushing for it. It's the actors uh, that are like, we I, want to play I, this I w- character. I would say that within five years, I'll go the other way on this. So remind me, five-year anniversary of this podcast. <laughs> I think that, that we will have multiple. You're probably right. All right. Last main characters. Last one. Girl Scout cookies are back. What's the best Girl Scout cookie? The, the most racially insensitive. It's called a Samoan. 100% <laughs> correct. Is that the, uh, what, what is that? Is that the coconut one? Yeah, coconut with like a, ch- a, l- a little chocolate on it. Yeah, I hate mm. those, but I hate oh, coconut. Oh, so good. So it's my, dude, it's the best. Uh, my, my wife is going out of town for a few I'm days. I'm a thin so men's guy. Before she left, I, before she's leaving, I said, hey, I said, you need to hide every single one of these Girl Scout cookies because she had a bunch of Samoas, and they are my favorite. They're so good. They're actually surprisingly good if you if you stick them in the freezer. Really? Um, yeah, surprising. I like Tagalongs because they kind of taste like a... Like, I eat them all before like they can get to the freezer, so... <laughs> Typically, yes. I eat, well, unless I buy like 11 boxes, which is... And Thin Mints are nasty, so I don't care what you say. 
Dude, I love Thin Mints, but I don't thin like mints, coconut. Thin Mints are cool, but they're not like I. I so which one is the the dosi dough? Is Tagalong is the one that has chocolate and it's peanut, a peanut butter? Right? Yeah, right. Dosi dough is peanut butter, but there's no chocolate. It's just a cookie, and it's got peanut butter in the middle. I love those two. Could be good. Uh, and then was it last year they came, or like not last year? Probably within the last five years they came out with a s'mores cookie, which was pretty good too. That's good. It, it is a cool one. And once I find something well, I like, boys. I just get that. But Samoa is the best, and it ain't it ain't close. All right, you heard it here first. Samoa is the best cookie. Um, all right, boys, you ready? We love you, Preacher Paul. We're sorry it didn't work out. Thank you, Jake Bellwood of Louisville, Kentucky. Big Red for thinking of this great idea for a podcast. Shout out. We out. Peace. Magic in the attic is back at it again You're just chilling to the rhythm And then love comes in Sit right back and just have a good time Listen to the music and let your feelings fly Grab one of your friends and just sing and dance, sing and dance till the night ends in sweet romance. Cause all that I'm trying to do is have a good, good time. All that I'm trying to do is have a good, good time. Stop now, we're doing this all night long Cause I just want to laugh it all away Cause I get this feeling that it is going to stay Cause all that I'm trying to do is have a good, good time All that I'm trying to do is have a good, good time It's a beautiful day outside, so come play Soak up the sun and think about the things of the day about you all that I can running in circles around and around in my head all that I'm trying to do is have a good good time all that I'm trying to do is have a good good time All that I'm trying to do is have a good, good time All that I'm trying to do is have a good, good time